0: The China and Africa Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Vit University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at AfricaChinaReporting.co.za.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa Podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sub China. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Cobus today we're going to talk tech, and we're going to go to the question of Huawei and ZTE and Chinese tech in Africa. It's one of the most fascinating aspects of the Chinese-African engagement story, but one that we haven't really explored as much as we should have this year. If you recall at the beginning of the year, Cobus, we said that this was going to be the year of China-Africa tech. We had an interview with our friend Stephanie Zhu in Nairobi uh, that was all before COVID and everything that's happened, so tech kind of fell away a little bit, but a lot of things are happening, and that's why I'm really excited about today's show. Let me take you back before we get into kind of Huawei and these, these details of what's going on in Africa to October, and Bonnie Glick, who was the then deputy administrator at the U.S. Agency for International Development, I say then because uh, she was just fired by Donald Trump. And uh, so she's no longer with USAID. She's now at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She was very excited about a new program that the United States government was unveiling to challenge Huawei in developing countries. And what they were going to do is offer all of this new money to basically try and persuade network and telecom operators in places like Africa to uninstall their existing Huawei equipment and ZTE gear, and then to buy equipment from, say, Ericsson or Samsung from so-called friendly countries. It was the most boneheaded, stupid idea that's come out of the U.S. government in a long time. Uh, And I like the reaction that Jude Moore at the Center for Global Development had on Twitter. He said, "Uh, if the U.S. government goes ahead with this, it forces Huawei to drive down its prices or add sweeteners to its ICT deals, delivering greater value for money in price-sensitive Africa I am here for this. So he was really making fun of of what USAID was doing there because you're never going to beat the Chinese on price, especially a company like Huawei that has the state behind it in terms of access to public financing. So if the U.S. comes in on a Monday and says, we'd like to offer you money to take out your gear or to buy Samsung equipment, the Chinese will come back on Tuesday and say, what did they offer you on Monday? We'll double it. And that's what Jude was talking about. But it shows you, I think in one sense, really the lack of understanding that the United States has in its efforts to try and push back against Huawei and ZT and Chinese tech. Because what it reveals is that they're focusing on just those two things. And that really is the tip of the iceberg. Underneath the water, there's this massive, massive iceberg. Let me tell you about what's going on in Africa today that uh, Chinese companies right now, in the latest data that I saw from IDC, uh, have about 49% market share of the entire African smartphone market. 49%, one out of two. Most of that is dominated by one company, Transyn. Then there's another company called Boomplay, which many people outside of Africa have never heard of. It has 75 million users. That makes it one of the largest music streaming services in the world. And just to give you some context here, Spotify has 286 million users with 130 million subscribers. Apple Music has 72 million subscribers, and Amazon Music has 55 million subscribers. Now, there's a difference between users and subscribers, but regardless, Boomplay is right up there with the big brands. And what's interesting is when you look at the statistics about the largest streaming services in the world, they almost never feature Boomplay. And it's one of the only areas in the world, and I think maybe the only one that I can think of, where Apple and Spotify are getting their butts kicked, and Africa is this place where Boomplay is by far the dominant player right there. So then there was another interesting story that crossed earlier this month about Huawei and their new Mate 40 phone. This is a, a new smartphone, and it launched uh, in Africa, in South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, where the major markets where it launched. Now it's a very expensive phone. It's one of their top-tier premium phones. But for the first time, it came pre-installed with a built-in e-wallet that uses China's digital yuan or its cryptocurrency. And that was super interesting. And that's what prompted me to think, okay, we have got to start thinking about how we reinterpret Chinese tech in Africa because cryptocurrencies, blockchain, these new technologies are going to be the battlegrounds that the Chinese are fighting for. And it reveals again why the U.S. obsession with Huawei in many ways is so misled because Cobus. The integration of Chinese tech in Africa goes far beyond Huawei.
2: Yeah, it's you know kind of it's and even even if you look at Huawei's own work in in Africa, it's it's happening at almost every level. You know, so so you know kind of from from selling handsets all the way up the chain to to undersea cable provision. Um, so you know. In, in a situation where african african um, consumers are leapfrogging all over the place trying to get into the newest technologies and african states are, are looking to upgrade a bunch of different kind of networks and and systems at the same time so this goes from from rolling out you know just cell phone networks all the way to to smart city projects um you know it the Ch- chinese players are involved in all of those at the same time and it, it then because done then actually doesn't make a lot of sense to target one of them. You know, the, the issue is actually is is where Africa is in relation to the internet. You know, a very exciting moment for Africa, but a very kind of complicated one for, for, um, for people who want to try and kind of reroute it in a different direction. So we want to get some perspective on the Chinese
1: role throughout the entire what we call the technology stack. And that's every single layer of the technology ecosystem in Africa and what role Chinese companies are playing there to get some perspective on whether or not the focus on Huawei by the United States and others is right, and what it means in terms of where technology is going uh, right now in Africa. And for that, we couldn't have a better person. Michael Kamani, I'm so glad we were able to connect with him. He builds fintech, blockchain, and digital currency products. He's advising East African governments on blockchain. He's also working closely with big multinational finance companies like Visa fintech startups like Zippy which we'll find out a little bit more about and also nonprofits like the Blockchain Association of Kenya and also by the way he gets a lot of attention for his writing on the subject that he does on his blog Kioneki and also that he shares on Twitter and we're going to talk about a graphic that he did for us or you know which was absolutely fascinating. So Michael, good morning to you in Nairobi and thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me Eric. I'm glad uh, we connected. Good morning from Nairobi. You wrote this
1: graphic that you published on Twitter and then that you revised after our conversation about the East Africa Chinese digital stack. Can you talk to us a little bit about and try and verbally paint the picture for us about the technology stack that's in East Africa and what that means and what layers have Chinese technology in it?
0: Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, I've been I've been working a lot around uh, studying the digital economy of East Africa. Uh, for the last maybe seven years, and I think at some point I started, uh, in, in my work, I came across a lot of uh, Chinese influence in uh, things like uh, the mobile phones that people were using as far back as 2014, and over time, it started to become apparent that uh, there was a lot of Chinese technology that we were using, uh, not just at the consumer level, but also at the commercial level, like with telecommunications companies, also at the government level, with things like data centers, with things like uh, surveillance equipment. And then it's it's just been, been intensifying and moving further and further up what I call the Chinese stack into things like... Uh, Mobile applications that people use for playing music, like you mentioned, Boomplay. Uh, payment applications, like fintech apps, for making payments cross-border. So I just started getting curious as to, uh, like, what 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 the hell is going on, you know? And uh, I think the sketch you saw was like uh, was like me trying to like dig deeper and see uh, how much of East Africa's technology, uh, and, and I call it a technology stack because um, I'm looking at it from uh, the undersea cable that brings uh, internet connection to East Africa from the rest of the world. Uh, I'm looking at uh, telecommunication companies uh, like Safaricom and MTN that offer people uh, connection for making calls and accessing the internet. I'm looking at the handsets, the mobile handsets that people use uh, for making calls and connecting to the telecommunication companies. So pretty much just starting from the base foundation of how people connect to the rest of the world through the internet and how that goes all the way up to the applications that they use every day whether it's for listening to music or making payments or even dating sites uh, and I guess that's what led to uh, to the image that you shared in your in your article the image that I shared with you about the Chinese uh, how the Chinese are influencing East Africa's digital uh, stack and it's it's pretty interesting. I think my summary so far and what I've been telling a lot of the people that I work with is it seems that the Chinese have had like a, uh, like a, something like, an, like a swarm intelligence, you know, where uh, all the Chinese companies, it's as if they have a common strategy to penetrate uh, as much of uh, Af- East Africa's digital stock from different angles. So what you discover is, um, like the undersea cable that's coming to Africa, to East Africa, these uh, Chinese telecoms, that's part of uh, the company uh, that's bringing this undersea cable to East Africa. When you go to the next layer, which is uh, telecommunication companies, for example, uh, you find that Huawei is... Uh, has uh, over 60% or 50% presence in uh, providing equipment for, for these companies. So there's a lot of equipment provided by Chinese companies to these telecommunication companies. Then when you move up the, the stack to the mobile handsets, you realize uh, over 60, uh, over 60%, close to 60% of the smartphone market in East Africa is dominated by Chinese companies, and it's worse because even the the feature phones, like what people get before they can afford a smartphone, the Chinese also have a close to fifty percent uh, market share in that segment as well. And then you start looking at uh, the applications that are coming up. You start noticing that uh, there's a lot of Chinese capital coming in through uh, venture arms like uh, Future Hub, like Transsion, and then investing into applications that a lot of young. Young East African news, you know, like uh, music applications, like Boomplay that you mentioned. Um, so, 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 Eric, what I discovered is, uh, and this is the sketch I shared with you, is uh, it's as if at every level of the di- East Africa's digital stack, there is a heavy Chinese presence, you know, and I don't think it is coincidental. It's I think it's it seems like it's a it's a carefully crafted strategy to just attack this digital stack from multiple angles.
2: Michael, you know, you mentioned fintech, and, and obviously, you know, in in some fintech applications, um, particularly in micro payments, Africa is a is a world leader, and. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about what the, the extent and the nature is of Chinese investment in this sector, um, and then also you know kind of how Chinese f- payment applications how are they coexisting with African payment applications like M-Pesa?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the most known cases of uh, Chinese uh, investing in uh, fintech applications in in Africa uh, has been pound Pay, uh, but there's also been like uh, less. Uh, like Tencent. Tencent is invested in a company called Paystack, which is also a payment company. And generally there's been an explosion of like fintech applications uh, in Africa because everyone is trying, uh, is sort of trying to capture the young population that's emerging, that's moving into uh, the internet uh, through, through smartphones. And uh, for the past maybe five, six, seven years, there's been uh, an explosion of like fintech uh, fintech ventures fintech startups that i would say uh, are trying to build on what mpesa mpesa initially uh, started so M-Pesa, i'd call it like a low level kind of payment system but it doesn't really work well when you go to to the internet so these fintech startups have sort of emerged to bridge uh, payments for the online world and uh, i think one of the things that i've observed is like uh, the there's a lot of trade that happens generally between uh, East Africa and China, and there seems to be a concerted effort by fintech companies, like, for example, Wapipe, which is uh, which has an investment from Transition through uh, its venture arm known as Future Hub. Uh, they, are, they, they are trying to bridge the gap between how would you send money from, from East Africa to China if you wanted to quickly execute a trade on Alibaba, for example. So... If you look at East Africa, you can see there's a a channel that allows you to make payments from East Africa to Alibaba through M-Pesa. You can make payments through Wapipay. You can make payments through a company known as Flutterwave. So these fintech companies have identified that there's a, a large amount of volumes of trade between East Africa and China. And so they are investing heavily in, in, in things like partnerships, uh, in enabling digital payments between, uh, between those, two, those two regions. And what's even more interesting is that uh, these Chinese companies are super aggressive about identifying these partnership opportunities. Uh, they are not they are not shy about uh, reaching out to fintech companies and investing in fintech companies like Wapipay. And most recently, Pay has probably been their biggest uh, attempt at trying to become a uh, a dominant force in the fintech ecosystem. So Pound Pay is 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 a is a fintech startup uh, under under transition which is one of the which ha- owns like 60 50% of the market share of uh, of phones uh, in Africa. So I would say there is a lot of partnerships to enable payments for trade. There's investments from China going into into fintech companies there is a concerted effort to try and have uh, chinese companies also become a player in africa's and uh, east africa's fintech fintech space
1: before we go much further in the discussion i just think i need to put out onto the table the concern that americans have about chinese technology in general huawei in particular and there's this sense in washington when i'm there and i talk to people who are involved in this fight and they say what well, don't people in Kenya and Africa understand the risks that they're taking by using Huawei technology? And the concern is that in Huawei, and again, this probably applies to all Chinese tech in the in the minds of many Americans and some Europeans, that because of the close relationship between these companies and the Communist Party, and because that they are subject to Chinese domestic laws that require them to hand over information about customers and to be able to create... This is the American allegation. There's never been any proof of it, but backdoors into the networking equipment so that they can potentially surveil, uh, monitor, do all sorts of different things in the event that they need to, should the Chinese government or the Communist Party ask them to do so. When you talk to companies, government leaders, and others in the East African tech space that you work in, is there concern about Chinese technology and security the way that the Americans are articulating it?
0: I think there is like maybe small pockets from uh, from activists who are usually mostly anti any mega tech platforms like Facebook or Twitter. So generally activists here, uh, they'll attack anything that looks big, you know. Uh, but I would say that a lot of people here are super practical about the Chinese relations, you know. Uh, let me tell you that my first smartphone uh, about 10, 10 years ago, about uh, 10, 10, 10, 12 years ago, was a uh, Huawei, was a Huawei Ideos. Uh, before that, uh, we had like some smartphones that didn't really have uh, Android. Uh, they were like uh, the earliest versions of smartphones, and most of them were Chinese. So the Chinese and Huawei are pretty much responsible for enabling us East Africans to even remotely consider uh, owning a decent smartphone, you know? So when we talk about Africa's, dig- East Africa's digital uh, success, uh, digital economy success, I think most of us agree that it is built on, on Huawei and, and, and Chinese technology and Chinese smartphones. and. I think most people are, are practical about that, you know. Uh most of us here own, a lot of us own Chinese smartphones. Uh they work pretty well for us, they're affordable. Uh, they have uh it's easy to find parts for them. And this is something that you you haven't seen from any American company, you know. Uh very few of us can afford uh iPhones from from from, from Apple. So I think a lot of us are are realistic about the role that uh that China has played in enabling a lot of us to become more connected to the rest of the world. That said, however, uh, I do meet some people, for example, who have worked in uh, the telcos industry, uh, deep in the telcos industry, who have ha- who had this kind of foresight, because they've seen for a while how the Huawei's have been taking over uh, Africa's, uh, East Africa's telcos infrastructure. And they don't seem to like the fact that uh, that companies like Huawei don't bother much about uh, knowledge transfer or they're not really t- here to help us develop. It's as if they are here for their own commercial interests, you know. So I'd say majority of us I think are more practical. We can see the types of Huawei, Chinese companies have been good for us, but there are pockets of, uh, of activists and people who are, are insiders in the industry who are maybe not too pleased by the approach by Huawei and some of the Chinese companies. Let me just
1: add to that very quickly, Kobus. Before I get to your question, my broadband, which is a, a website in South Africa, did a survey of South Africa's telco providers who are doing five G, and they asked them after this uh, proposal by Bonnie Glick in the U.S. Agency for International Development to subsidize a replacement for Huawei equipment whether or not they. Uh, Liked or disliked Huawei equipment. Rain, which is a mobile data provider, said, quote, Rain has no reason to believe that Huawei equipment specifically carries increased security risks compared to other vendors. Vodacom said to date, there has been no public documented evidence of any security issues with Huawei network equipment. So the view in South Africa seems to be very similar to that in East Africa as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, on on top of that, there's there's just this you know i think i think african frugality just you know revolts against the idea of ripping out perfectly good equipment um and replacing it when there's so many other parts of the continent that still has no internet at all you know so i think it just it, there's just a part of it that just goes against against all development thinking in 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 africa um michael i wonder if we could hone in a little bit on on the the payment um the payment technologies um like in in the case of of say that you know the the case where where you um, use, uh, you know, either a, a Chinese or an African um, payment service to buy something um, on Alibaba from, say, Kenya, what currency is that transaction happening in? Uh, and then, you know, kind of what is the more general thinking around the, the the impact of all of these technologies on national currencies in Africa?
0: I would say, for, for, from this side, uh, the fintech. Companies or the payment companies trying to offer services to to East Africans who are shopping on on Alibaba, and this is something that uh, a lot of a lot of East Africans are shopping for Alibaba, whether it's for their own personal use. A lot of them are shopping for as uh, as resellers or as uh, micro SMEs. So the 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 companies offering these services kind of have to make it super easy for users to make payments on uh on these uh platforms abroad so for example with if you're making a payment on alibaba or aliexpress with uh with MPESA, you pretty much get a uh you're able to pay with your local currency and somehow in the back end all the currency conversion has been figured out you know so you just get a price that's uh that's listed in Kenya shillings, and you don't really have to worry about the the currency conversions. Uh, So uh, that that would apply for Flutterwave, another payments partnership, that would apply for WAPI Pay, which also bridges payments, and also applies for for M-Pesa. But what I have observed is, like, over time there's been a lot of discussions. There's been discussions by about 14 central banks uh, in, in, in Africa on uh, having yuan-based uh, reserves, so having reserves for the Chinese currency, and perhaps this would be something that would enable uh, deeper, uh, making payments easier between, uh, between our country and and, and China for, for, for trade. So I think the currency issues you described, the currency uh, issue you mentioned is being addressed at the central bank level uh, through uh, trying to make the yuan a reserve currency. It's also been at uh, at the payments level. It's already figured out through uh, some interbank type type of systems. Um, um, I don't think our currencies are really at threat from 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 the Chinese currency. What I see is they are complementary because of the the sort of trade that 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 takes place between East Africa and China. So one way I've been looking at this is I do think that you're gonna see a lot more. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. When I saw the, the story about Mate 40 and the digital currency that's running on the Mate 40 that's based on the, the China's DCEP, in my mind, I'm, I'm trying to, to connect the dots and see is there any way that's like a a play to enable uh, deeper integration of payments between Africa and, and China for the purposes of trade, you know? So that's, that's how I see it. Yeah,
1: I don't, I don't see it as a play between Africa and China for trade as much as I think that China wants to make DCEP, just for those of you not familiar, DCEP stands for Digital Currency Electronic Payment, that is the digital version of the renminbi or the yuan that is backed by the People's Bank of China. So that is the key. And one of the key differences between the Chinese cryptocurrency and others, like the one from Libra or Facebook, is the fact that there is a backdoor in the Chinese cryptocurrency. That is a core requirement from the People's Bank of China, is that they can get access to monitor users' data. That's one of the differentiating factors between that and, say, an open source cryptocurrency or other non-Chinese, is, it's impossible to actually monitor that. But... I tend to think, and I'd like to get your reaction to this, Michael, that the Chinese want, they're going for a bigger piece of the pie. There's a battle right now in places like Africa to establish standards. And cryptocurrency is one of these areas where there's 55,000 different cryptocurrencies. There's no standard that's set yet. And they want to become one of four or five that will rule the world, if you will. You know, people are fighting for these standards on technology, on, on all different, different sorts of things. So... With taking into account the idea that Transin has 50%, imagine getting into the Transin ecosystem with a DCEP cryptocurrency on the back end to facilitate some of the functionality on things like Pompeii. The user will never know that this is a Chinese cryptocurrency, but as you talked about, it just facilitates the transactions. That seems to me to be the prize that they're going to be going for rather than just the narrow vertical of China-Africa trade.
0: Yeah, Erica, I would agree with you because one of the things that uh, I've I've picked up from uh, from Africa and East Africa is uh, we we have a very poor payments infrastructure. So unlike the rest of the world, like the West, where they had like maybe fifteen twenty years to establish a, uh, like a credit card payment network, in in Africa this it's been the opposite. You know, we have very little credit card penetration. So the credit card payments infrastructure isn't as uh, as pervasive as the new sort of payment methods that emerge, such as M-Pesa. So M-Pesa is completely different from, from credit card payments infrastructure because it it, nat- it natively runs on on like a chip in your mobile phone, like a SIM card. So it's native to your to your mobile phone. And it, it has like a dominance of, of around 80, 80, 85%. And this, this has been really powerful in enabling the unbanked to quickly be able to to have like a financial service they can access from their mobile phone without too much requirements on uh, on KYC signups. There's a difference between it being nat- what you call uh, native
1: to the phone, which is a chip built into it. That's what the new Huawei Mate 40 is doing with DCEP. It's got it built into the phone. And the idea there is that it's far more secure when it's built into it as opposed to running as an app. Is that correct?
0: Yes, let me explain. That is correct because, for example, with M-Pesa, M-Pesa is like a SIM card. That's re- you can. It's like a chip that you can put in and slot out of your phone. The one you mentioned from the Mate 40 is different because it's embedded in the hardware, so it's not something that you can take out. And with apps. Apps are different. For example, M-Pesa is more secure than a a payment application that runs on Android because that chip provides some security that allows you to sign transactions. So it's like a key that you have that you can use to sign payment transactions. So with with the Huawei Mate 40, when they they have an embedded chip on the phone that can run a digital currency at the top, like at the application layer, it gives you a very secure way for someone to be able to sign and approve and approve payments, yeah? So I agree with you because I see that uh, Africa generally has this problem that they don't have this uh, super great payments infrastructure. They don't have a standard that cuts across the whole region. Mobile money is very country specific. It's not interoperable across different countries. So if someone can be able to create like a new standard that can allow someone to make payments from Kenya to East Africa and just cut across all these differences in local currencies, which is what I think is happening with, with the cryptocurrency trend in general and also with digital currencies, then they can be able, for example, to monetize some of these applications with with even something like micropayments. So right now, sometimes a lot of us are using applications, but whenever you want to make a payment, the, uh, the the dumb app asks you for a credit card payment. And what I have on my in my pocket is MPESA, pesa is a mobile kind of payment form. So there is a disconnect, yeah? And if someone like Huawei is able to make something like a digital currency with the security of a chip, to be able to work with like uh, applications like Boomplay, with a uh, other type of applications, then we can have even new types of monetization models, You know, like micropayments for music streaming apps. So you're right. I totally agree with you that these new kinds of payment infrastructure and payment standards are going to seep all the way to the top into applications like music streaming services, like video streaming services. And they're going to be able to enable Chinese companies or whoever can tap into that technology to monetize and not just monetize but even be able to monetize in new ways like micropayments you know so i'm totally with you on on that eric
2: so you know I can, I can see you know that there's massive potential for for setting up this kind of architecture particularly also on the back of the of the african continental free trade agreement who are the main players in in you know in in that race like you know except for the 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 chinese actors are like which other international players are also involved
0: with uh, payments yes
2: in in this in this move towards kind of universalizing and facilitating cross border payments,
0: yeah, I would say Visa, for example, which is uh, an American company, so Visa has always had a footprint here because of uh, established relationships with banks. But they've also always had the challenge of uh, competing with these new uh, mobile payments emerging standards, you know. And Visa has really had trouble uh, penetrating into uh, some 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 East African market segments because. Uh, getting a visa card is a comp- it's a it's, it's it's a it's a it's it's more of a hassle compared to getting a, a mobile payments, and this is why mo- a mobile mobile money or mobile wallet, and this is why mobile wallets like M-Pesa, like MTN Money, like Airtel Money, which are like mobile wallets offered by telecommunications companies, this is why they've been able to be successful because they are really able to. Uh, enable and someone who's unbanked to quickly get set up with uh, with a mobile wallet. So I'd say Visa Visa has has had trouble uh, winning in this market, and right now they have this strategy where they are working with uh, they're investing in like fintech startups. They've invested in Paystack, they've invested in cheaper Cash, they've invested in MFS Africa. They also have have this pan-African strategy where they're they're doing a lot more partnerships. So they've almost Change their strategy, and they are a bit more open to working with uh, with with younger, nimble companies that are trying to solve the cross-border Pan-African uh, uh, payments problem at the at the app at the app level. So Visa is definitely trying to is also trying to like uh, assert itself and, and still remain relevant. I think the other the other type of uh, international company that I've seen and one that I'm watching close closely has been. Uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, and Libra, uh, because Facebook, WhatsApp uh, consortium, they have uh, they have close to a hundred, over a hundred million users uh, across Africa. I think it's almost 150 million users, and they've already they already have people who are using their their platform for communications, for 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 trade and commerce. But what they've they've really lacked is uh, a way to integrate payments. And I think you can see from even other regions in the world, WhatsApp is, is being very proactive about signing, signing up payment partners in some of these uh, regions. So in Africa, WhatsApp is also, uh, I do look at them as someone who's potentially trying to also unlock the payment standards, payment infrastructure for its own, for its own purpose. And I think Libra, if you, if you noticed when they announced Libra, Libra was, was, was masked as, as something that could help the unbanked in, in developing countries like ours. So I'd say Visa, I'm looking at Visa as well. Visa is definitely someone who's trying to make uh, forays into this market to um, uh, uh, establish themselves here. Facebook Libra, even though it hasn't yet launched, I'm aware they're trying to also find a way to get uh, into this market. Uh, and I think Opera, Opera the browser, which is also Chinese owned, uh, has also been uh, working to uh, to create like payment wallets uh, within its browser in Nigeria and, and Kenya. So those are some other international companies that are also trying to uh, to, to, to establish themselves here. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the Americans in part because while we talk a lot about the Chinese, obviously on this podcast, the Americans have been very, very active. And you talked about Visa. A Visa of last year dropped $200 million into a company called InterSwitch. Uh, Stripe, which is a payment processing company, Uh, In the U.S., very, very popular payment processing company. They bought uh, Paystack for $200 million, making it the largest acquisition of a tech company in Africa. Uh, That's very exciting. So the, the American firms are very, very active. They're just not as active in the network infrastructure space and also in the hardware space the same way they are in the services area, which makes sense at one level simply because the U.S. generally is a service economy and we're not as much of a hardware economy. And that hardware is mostly owned, particularly in the, uh, the device is by Asian manufacturers in Korea and also in China for the most part. So, uh, but just, you're right, you brought that up in terms of the American role that's there. I'd like to close out our discussion in terms of looking ahead to the future. And do you have any concerns about the growing Chinese presence in the tech stack that you outlined in East Africa, or are you more optimistic about what the Chinese are doing? Which, where do you kind of come down in terms of thinking about the future?
0: So I really try to be objective about uh, uh, about these issues uh, because I can I can can sit and and look objectively and see uh, why Africans would be working deals with the Chinese, you know, because we don't we don't have much options, you know. We kind of have to take what's available, what's best for us. So I'm not too concerned about it. Uh, I don't have an opinion on whether it's good or bad. I just track it as a trend to see where it's headed. I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, I do think the Chinese, uh, just looking at this stock, I don't see how we can move away from this stock to maybe a more diversified stock with Americans and Europeans in it in the next two, three, or four years, especially considering the economic times. You know, our governments right now don't have much money. Uh, They'll probably bend over for any any great deal that they get. So going forward, I think what I'm looking at is uh, I'm looking at seeing how this digital currency, uh, uh, this Chinese digital currency, DCEP, how it gets embedded into the Afri- East Africa's digital economy. I'm looking at whether it could end up as part of payments, micropayments in applications. The other thing I'm looking at, I'm looking at how the digital Silk Road, how that's going to, to impact uh, this digital stack. I'm also looking at, uh, at trends in, in China f- about blockchain. So China has this ambitious project known as the Blockchain Service Network uh, that's supposed to have a, a domestic component and an international component. And I'm looking at how they could potentially ex- export that to, to, to East Africa. Because in East Africa, I'm seeing uh, uh, some governments are considering blockchain for some of their some of their infrastructure. So I'm trying to see Uh, is there any way there could be any connections there? So uh, Eric, as someone who's, uh, I've kind of worked as a journalist, I try not to take positions on these issues. (laughs) I just track the trends. (laughs) Well, we
1: appreciate that. We really do appreciate that. Your insights are absolutely invaluable. If you want to find out more about what Michael's writing and reading, go to his blog, Kioneki, K I O N E K I, and uh, I'll put a link for that in the show notes. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Michael Kamani, he builds fintech, blockchain, and digital currency products in Nairobi. He also advises East African governments on blockchain issues, and as you can hear, he is expert in the kind of the the tech stack and all the different technologies as they lay upon one another to make the tech ecosystem in places like East Africa and the Chinese role in that. So Michael, thank you so much. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and also to connect with you, Uh, Twitter is very, very important to you. What's your Twitter handle?
0: My Twitter handle is at Pesa underscore Africa, P-E-S-A underscore Africa.
1: And once again, we'll put a link to his Twitter and also to his blog as well. And I highly recommend it that you add it to your regular reads because it's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, Michael. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thank you for having me. Kovus, it's absolutely fascinating to talk to people like Michael, and you hear how measured they are, how balanced they are in assessing the risks and the rewards of using equipment like Huawei. And it is such a stark contrast to when you hear the discourse in the United States about Huawei from so many. I mean, it's just henny penny, the sky is falling. I think there are legitimate reasons to be worried about Huawei. I think, honestly, there's legitimate reasons to be worried about all tech. Okay, I mean, so so and Huawei has not done enough to be transparent, in my view, on on these concerns about security. Absolutely. But the way it was explained to me by a tech analyst in Johannesburg, and I thought this was a really good way of framing it. He said there's Android and iOS, iOS obviously being Apple, Android being Google. And he said people who use Android make a trade off on security because it's nowhere near as secure as an Apple iPhone. You're giving away so much of your data to Google and to others, the App Store is not as locked down, and and that's a, that's a trade-off because for a cheaper price, you get an amazing phone, but it's not as secure. And we know this was the same thing with PCs versus Mac, that PCs were getting infected with viruses and do get infected with viruses far more than Macs do, but you pay a premium for Macs and for Apple products. and. Not everybody can do that. And even those who can sometimes say, you know what? I like the features better on Android and on PC than I do on Mac and iOS. And I think that's a very similar debate between what we're talking about with Huawei and security, that the amount of features and functionalities that Huawei brings to Safari Com is enormous. And yes, I think there's an acknowledgement from IT professionals that there are security risks. But the risks that a lot of Africans are actually more concerned about is not coming from the Chinese, but from other Africans. And one of the things I saw was a report last week about how piracy and uh, cyber hacking is coming f- within Africa is a huge problem. And so I think the the range of concerns that people have about this issue is far more than the communist party of china that's not to necessarily downplay the concerns that are legitimate 100 percent, about the relationship between huawei and the ccp but it just goes to show that the interests in places like africa are very very different than those in washington
2: yeah i mean you know kind of africans are primarily you know focused on on trying to move forward as as africa you know um and of course the 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 unexamined issue i think that that, that isn't mentioned enough in the Huawei discussion is that sure there might be a lot of a lot of you know concerns about Huawei and ZTE and other other Chinese companies, but but Western companies have proven very willing to work with authoritarian governments in Africa. They you know kind of they facilitated kind of surveillance left and right. So you know so when, when it comes down to that, is the the case isn't that different. And
1: it's very interesting because I think you mentioned this point, and Jude Moore has also brought up this point that it's not a choice for many african countries between huawei and ericsson or huawei alcatel huawei samsung the choice is really between huawei or nothing that is this that is the stark choice because the huawei equipment comes with the financing and that's what really makes it different is the fact that the financing enables the the purchase to be made, and you've made that point on a number of occasions.
2: Yeah, and and in the end, you know, it it, it also comes down to just to just kind of um, you know Africans just also needing to live their lives. You know, like the 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 kind of the flip side of you know of of I think a narrative that that is frequently. Characterized or frequently framed as one of domination. You know, kind of like Chinese, you know, the Chinese companies build the networks and then Africans are locked into a Chinese kind of internet environment. Sure, I guess. But at the same time, you know, people need to buy stuff, right? So, so like, you know, if you need to buy like 2000, uh, you know, kind of um, COVID masks, um, you need to get it from somewhere. If you if you're in Nairobi, and you can get it from China on, uh, you know, kind of on an efficient network where it'll arrive two weeks later you know then then if the, if another network isn't in place to do that then you know kind of then there are there's nothing really you can say you know like in the end it comes down to to african consumers and the thing is only so far only the chinese take african consumers seriously you know western companies are still generally in large large terms not involved um you know like except for for kind of like high, you know you know prominent companies kind of nibbling around the edges like you know kind of spotify setting up in south africa for example um you know like generally like western companies don't give a hoot about about what african consumers want or what they want to buy um you know the and 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 that in the end i think you know that that's what it comes down to let's look forward past the kind of
1: covid era that we're in now and we've talked over the past few months about a lot of changes that are coming You and I seem to believe that the amount of Chinese physical infrastructure investment is probably going to go down. We've heard that from a number of different guests on the show over the past few months, that the appetite for big railway projects and infrastructure projects is just not there like the way it was, say, five, seven, eight years ago. That being said, uh, we reported this week in our newsletter that Uganda is in talks with the China Exim Bank for $2 billion of funding of their standard gauge railways. So maybe there is an appetite, but it may not be on the same magnitude that we saw in previous years. And then we saw an interesting quote, and I forget who said it, but you, you really enjoyed this quote, is that broadband is the new road. And it leads me to think that the Chinese are gonna devote more time, investment, and attention in Africa to focusing on digital infrastructure that will then align with the digital Silk Road that Michael brought up, this this new peace cable, which is the Pakistan, East Asia, East Africa, oh, I forget what the C and the E stands for Europe. Uh, That's this new big fiber optic broadband trunk that's coming in that, that Huawei Marine is laying down, the big data hub in Djibouti that is now built, that China Telecom, I wanna say, or Unicom, it's either one or the two, now has as their major hub in East Africa as well. And so let's look past in the COVID era that the Chinese commitment to African tech is going to go up considerably in my view, in part also because this battle over the standards. And I'd like to talk to you more about standards because this is one of the concerns that the US and Europe have about Chinese hegemony around the world is in the new fight for standards and cryptocurrency as arcane as it seems to most people to me is one of the areas that is going to be of really really important to focus on.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. Um you know because we're not only talking about the cryptocurrency itself, we're talking about the entire the entire flow of goods and services between between Asia, Africa, uh, the the kind of uh, Indian Ocean Rim, you know, community and Europe, um, you know, so so it's it's all of all of the work of the BRI is you know touches on this issue. Um, the the moment you know if if say a Chinese you know payment system becomes a, a standard, that will of course be essentially a, a kind of a machine to print money. You know, it would like the 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 profits related to that are massive. Um, keep in mind that that Africa really is the only untapped emerging market in the world um, so you know so so I can, I can see that you know that, that a lot of people would be very very kind of focused on 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 trying to to kind of push the standards in a p- kind of particular way you know I just you know for me my preoccupation is always is you know is, is how African governments are going to be dealing with this um, and how it's going to shake out for African consumers the speed with which this can happen is is astounding so here in
1: Vietnam which in many ways, is a similar profile to a lot of African countries in terms of development levels, infrastructure, and whatnot. Uh, just a few years ago, nobody used credit cards. It was a cash-based economy. And then in the space of 18 to 24 months, it has just exploded. I mean, it's incredible. And you go to the 7 here, and they have like 15 different payment options. You can use so many. I mean, there's so many now. And I think that's coming to Africa as well. And this is something Michael alluded to, that there's just all these new payment services that are coming into into, in, into the space. And I think it's going to be a very exciting time. It's going to cut down on transaction costs. It's going to facilitate commerce. And also, interestingly enough, a story we're featuring in our newsletter today is about how it's going to be cutting out uh, African traders in China. The middleman is getting cut out. And this is an interesting aspect of the Africans in China discussion that we've been having for so long. Because people are buying directly from Alibaba and AliExpress in Africa, which is not a trend that I saw coming that fast, but it's starting to happen. There was this ridiculous tweet that came out the other day that Standard Bank was promoting AliExpress in Zambia. And I thought, that is just weird, you know, and maybe it's not so weird that you're going to be able to go online, order something, and it gets shipped directly from China, directly to your house in Lusaka. And that is the world we're living in. And you'll pay, of course, with some of these new cryptocurrencies. So it's a new world, Cobus, And it can happen really fast.
2: Yeah, and and Africans will be on it. You know, kind of the, this is this is the thing with you know kind of uh, what we've seen over the last twenty twenty years is is sure they're starting from a low base and, and and the systems are very kind of broken and you know kind of there there isn't a lot of a lot of cohesion between the different systems. But African consumers are very proactive for in in terms of of adopting to new technologies. They just jump well, into. Well, it's a young population. Case. I mean,
1: it's a population of teenagers who mm. embrace this kind of change, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no, and these are digital first teenagers. They're, there's yeah. no adapting to it. They are born in it. They're breathing in it. They're in it. If
2: a company like Amazon is still is still planning to, you know, to to, to deal with, you know, to, to have people make p- credit card payments and then, you know, kind of, and then having to deal with customs th- that, you know, all of there, there's a, there's a lot, of, a lot of these kind of heritage companies in, in the West, you know, like a, a lot of them I don't think are going to. Are gonna you're gonna make that much of a dent? I think I think the market is is already pivoting, you know, kind of in 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 a more Asian direction. But I mean, you know, I'm an outsider, so I'm not sure, but.
1: Fair enough. Well, let's leave the conversation there. This is going to be a topic we'll pick up again uh, later in the year. Let us know what you thought. If there's particular aspects of the tech discussion that you're more interested in because it's so multifaceted, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can reach us easily. We're very, very accessible. You can find me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. That's E-R-I-C. And you can find Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. We email back very quickly and Cobus is busier than I am, but I email back very, very quickly with oftentimes some really long emails. And I love getting into conversations with folks about the what they like, what they don't like, and topics and suggestions and things like that. So feel free to reach out and, uh, and, and say hello. Also, a big thank you to all of our subscribers uh, to our daily email newsletter. We're just so excited that it's growing and that you seem to be enjoying it. And if you'd like to become a part of our growing reader community, It's super easy. It's only $7 a month for students, $15 a month for everybody else. And you can go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Kobus and I are putting together this deep dive on all things related to technology, to politics, to geopolitics, to economics, the debt crisis, you name it. Anything to do with the China-Africa relationship gets consumed and gets published into this newsletter. We do analysis on it as well. And that's why it's being read by folks in Washington, in Brussels, at the UN, uh, in Beijing, at embassies around Africa and in Asia as well. So we're really excited about the audience and the growth that it's seeing. We'd love for you to become a part of it. So if you have any questions about that, don't hesitate whatsoever to give me a call so or an email, actually. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening.
0: The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinski or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.ChinaAfricaProject.com.